listening to the New Century Multiverse, The Princess Thieves. Chapter 3. Breakfast Brawl At breakfast, Gwendolyn did behave herself. Aaron sat across from her and they exchanged formal chit-chat. He was tall for a dwarf and nearly came up to her supersternal notch. Put a big hat on his head and he'd be touching her chin. He had neatly groomed red hair, pale blue serious eyes, and a clipped moustache. At one point he extended across the table a thick-fingered dwarf hand to her. Gwendolyn took it, feeling the warm grip and its intentions of reassurance, even if that goal was not reached. Only seven days to go. So exciting, wouldn't you say? But of course, no doubt you're also nervous. Gwendolyn glanced over at Viola, who was daintily eating porridge. Her companion nodded, barely perceptibly. Becoming your queen and you becoming king. It's always been an awful lot of responsibility. Quite a bit of transformation, too. Do you not think you're ready yet, Sweet Pea? You know everything that has to be done, and I promise your day-to-day routine will not be transformed over much. But I'll be Queen of the Empire. Yes, you will. Gwendolyn let her eyes rest on the wrapped gift that sat on the table beside her breakfast. The doors at the end of the hall opened and Coriolanus, the Archduke of Buckingham, strode in, his bootfalls echoing around the magnificent room, his armor clinking. This dwarf's face had been a permanent fixture in Gwendolyn's life. The majority of people who have ever existed shall never have statues or busts crafted in their likeness. Particularly significant figures of royalty or office or historical importance get to share this honor. In most cases, the artist must overlook the human frailties, blemishes, double or absent chins, or generally ordinary appearance of the vast majority of this fortunate minority. The focus must be on capturing their importance and status for the ages. Coriolanus was a rare beast indeed, in that he not only had a face and form seemingly designed to be chipped out of stone, but may in fact have been some kind of animated statue himself. It was not that he was perfect, his brow was furrowed, his skin mottled and scarred from battle, his gait slightly leaning due to an injured knee. It was that, when beheld in its entirety, he was a truly splendid and fearsome sight to behold. Gwendolyn, Viola, and Lord Aaron raised themselves from their seated positions, and bowed to the regent. He set down his helmet and seated himself. I shall savor these last few bows. Next Sunday I will have to bend my head to both of you. You shan't have to if you don't want to, Father. The bow is not about what one wants, child, but of what is expected. The Archduke inclined his head and studied the girl, whose glances darted from Viola to Erin to her breakfast. She has pre-wedding jitters. Understandable. How are the pains? They have been bothering me more of late. And have you seen Dr. Marcus this week? No. In fact, I don't think I've seen him for... Oh. Three weeks and two days. Yes. I have been too busy with the arrangements to see to your comings and goings on a daily basis. That was the charge of other people 
who look after you. At this, he glanced over towards Viola, who, despite her diminutive size and boldness, visibly shrank. Gwendolyn, my dear, your sickness is not going to go away. It must be maintained and kept in balance, or you shall have these hysterical fits and furious outbursts for the rest of your life. A queen shall not be of any use to her subjects if she cannot keep her temper, or if the pain in her head and body overcomes her good nature. Yes, father. You will see him tomorrow, at the first convenience. Yes, father. And again on Saturday. The last thing you do before you are wed. I want your mind clear, your head held high, and your crown shining. He smoothed her hair away from her forehead with his gentle, rough touch. This unusual physical contact made Gwendolyn tremble and her heart race. I don't like him. I know. He is not a likable man, but he is keeping you well. Let him. As you wish, Father. Now I must speak with Lord Aaron. You may go and play with your pony. Viola, be sure she does not come to any harm whatsoever. Yes, Your Grace. Gwendolyn raised herself and then, with all the daintiness she could muster, conveyed her ample frame to the end of the hall, Viola jogging alongside her. As she finally cleared the doors, she was able to speak. Bugger, 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 bastard bollocks. Are you all right? Yes. Come on. As she walked, she waved over a nearby guard, a tall and muscular human named Simon. Jim, please, Simon. Yes, Your Royal Highness. She strode through the palace, Simon and Viola in tow, until they reached the gym in question. As the doors opened, Gwen unbuttoned and unlaced her dress, letting it fall to the floor as she walked. Viola scooped it up in the petticoat, and the boots, and Simon's coat, and Simon's boots, and shirt. Gwendolyn stopped at the end of the slightly raised wooden platform in the centre of the gym, and, her naked feet clutching at the boards, she turned in her underclothes towards Simon. He stood lightly, flexing his back and arms, his eyes lowered and respectful. Begin. Simon stepped in and swung a hard punch towards her gut. Gwen intercepted and countered, yanking the arm to one side and pulling him off balance. His knees came up and one of them collided with her chest. She gasped and turned forward, sending him crashing to the ground with her on top. He pulled back and away, but her legs were locked around his waist. She felt him struggle and smiled to herself, punching him in the chest and shoulder, hard enough to bruise, hard enough to let out the aggression, not hard enough to break his bones. His arm flailed and he caught her in the jaw, and Viola from the side started forward, seeing the sudden look of panic in Simon's eyes. <laughs> Gwendolyn grinned and shook her jaw out, twisting into a leg lock and pushing him uncomfortably face down into the wood. She heard him grunt, felt the tension, felt him push harder and harder, and ultimately give. <laughs> <laughs> she picked herself up and let him get back to his feet. Two gold, Viola. Thank you, Your Royal Highness. You let me win, though. Beg your pardon, ma'am, but I didn't. 
A real attacker would have hurt me far more. I, I do as I'm instructed to the best of my abilities, with the concerns for your safety paramount in my mind, Your Royal Highness. Is that so? Thyla, three more gold for Simon, please. I want to go again. <laughs> Gwendolyn pounced. Yeah. By the end of the fight, Simon was nursing aching fingers, and Gwendolyn had been winded by a sharp jab, and her head was ringing from an accidental crack against the floor. From where she stood, Viola very subtly cast a mind-numbing spell on Simon. His fingers would still be in pain, but he would notice the sharpness less. She stared up at Gwen, who was wiping a thin trickle of blood from her nose, observing the tiny splash of red triumphantly. Viola breathed deeply and steadily, and tried to control her pounding heart. Oh, look at you, you're a mess. We need to get you another bath before we ride Trumbull. And some makeup to cover those bruises. It wouldn't do to let people see you like this. No more baths. To the stables. Thank you again, Simon. <sighs> Viola, can you tip him an extra ten and tell them sorry about the headbutt? As you wish. I'm really very sorry, Simon. She's got a lot to work through right now. Your pains are deeply appreciated. For your tip, I'm paying you double what she said. I really didn't go easy on her. I know. I could see. But she can't be told anything. Robin and Oberon were hugging the wall at the eastern edge of the Manfred Rope Factory in Putney. Robin stole a glance through the open window and beheld three dozen workers sitting in rows, much like the pews of a church each with a coil of rope fibre in their lap, and each weaving away diligently. He could see the calluses on their fingers, the ten thousand cuts upon their hands, the strain of their foreheads as they squinted in the lamplight. Not one of them was older than eleven years. The enforcers walked the stalls, hardened men with batons, occasionally prodding or striking the children whose speed and productivity dropped below the minimum required. Always on the legs and backs. The hands needed to be kept as functional as possible, and if the heads were struck, productivity would decline naturally anyway. Robin's lips were pursed, his teeth ground together, his moustache twitched, and his brow lowered to his nose. His laboured, tight breathing was audible, and Oberon had to hold up an enormous hand to caution him. Robin quieted himself and marked the lamps, four of them. They would all have to be put out for this to work properly. The pair would need total darkness to overcome five enforcers. Unfortunately, both he and Oberon knew Robin wasn't the best shot in the world. His short bow was clutched in his hands, but practice every week though he might. Under duress like this, his aim was dicey at best. Nevertheless, he eyeballed the lamp on the far left of the room and nodded Oberon towards the one at the opposite corner. Get those dealt with and seated the two in the centre when the panic began. Oberon moved over to the far window and Robin saw him nod in readiness. 
He took aim at the lamp, but an enforcer with a half-chewed ear blocked his shot. The burly fellow walked casually down the line to where a little girl was crying and nursing a cut under her thumbnail, which was making weaving exceptionally difficult tonight. Javier leaned down and tapped her in the mouth with his baton. Not too hard, not enough to badly injure her, but she gasped in pain and fright, and a tooth fell to the ground. Robin's temper flared, and Halfier suddenly had an arrow in his bicep. He stared at it in wonder as the first few seconds before the pain of his pierced humerus bone set in. Sir, it is time you picked on someone your own size. I mean, two-thirds your own size. I mean, we're about the same thickness, but oh, bollocks to it. In a moment, Robin had vaulted through the window, and Oberon was grimacing with frustration, following him. The room was in uproar. Children were screaming and leaping to their feet, and the enforcers were bellowing at the intruders. The lamps were knocked over, the rope caught fire, and the two outlaws tried their level best not to give the children nightmares regarding how their thuggish overseers were dispatched. Robin left Oberon to finish off the last two, and hurried the children from the factory, now filled with smoke and flames. They assembled in the back lot, and Robin kept them out of view of the street as the Akka emerged from the building, cradling a girl now missing a tooth. A tall boy stepped up, eye to eye with Robin, and shouted, What are you doing? Why did you do that? We're sorry, that wasn't how it was supposed to go. But we're freeing you. Now we have to move. What do you mean, freeing us? That was our home. They fed us. Now where are we supposed to go? Hands up who wants a job. An actual job. Even the tall boy put his hand up at this. Right then, stop your yapping and follow us. Quick and quiet. Oh, like that was. Oh, don't start. And move down this way. Are you all right, girl? Yes. Thank you, Biggin. <laughs> a Biggin. Uh, I'm keeping that one. What's your name? Lavinia. Well, I'm Robin Hood, and that's little John. But he's big. Yes, I, I, I know. That's the joke. It's British understatement. I'm Latvian. I don't get it, and I'm British. I'm calling you Biggin. Here, kid. Have a dolly. For me? Thank you. Hey, how come she gets a doll? You want a doll? No, but have you got a cup and ball or a stick and hoop? Look, we're not Father Christmas here. We just had a spare doll. Uh, you can have this door handle to play with. What am I supposed to do with this? Hey, how come he gets a door handle? Shut all of your cake holes or we'll drop you off at the next factory and there will be no dolls or door handles for anyone. I've never eaten cake in my life. Me neither. Shush. My grandmother used to make such wonderful honey cake. My grandmother was a good cook too. Oh, all of you, shut your gruel holes. That's more like it. Robin and Oberon led the children through the foggy streets, taking the back ways and secret paths and steering well clear of the watchman. Eventually, they came to the Thirsty Hog Inn and were led around the back to the basement door. It was warm and dry inside, and the bartender had set out a small cask of brandy and some wooden cups. The children warmed themselves beside the fire and sipped the brandy, blowing on their aching fingers and trying to contain their shivers of shock at the upheaval of their lives. Eventually, the basement door opened, and a female archer dressed in red descended the stairs and stood with a slight stoop beneath the low ceiling. I'm sorry for how frightening the events of your exodus were, but I can promise you that you are in a better, safer place now. May I start by asking who among you has ever earned a wage before? Around a quarter of the hands went up, 
but it was slow and tentative as the memories took a while to be uncovered. Yeah, that seems about right. Well, I can tell you all now that outside your workhouse, the average male human factory worker in this city earns eight silver a week. Female humans, four silver, and children, two. Arca are paid on a lower scale. An adult female like myself will be lucky to get three silver a week. Now, you were working with no pay at all, correct? Several of the children nodded. Your masters were getting labour from you ten times the value of housing and food. You were being exploited, and I want to give you the opportunity to choose what you do next. Now, you could go and compete for that low pay and work I just talked to you about, or you can consider my factories. I can offer you four silver a week, the same as an adult human female to work in my place as a business. You can tour them first and inspect the conditions, talk to the other workers. You can live with them or find your own place, although that may be more costly from your wages. Excuse me, Akka lady. My name is Scarlet Wilhelmina. Excuse me, Scarlet, but what are you hiding? Why are you doing this? I'm doing this because I value fairness, Mr... Jack. Mr. Jack, everybody deserves to be treated with what you call humanity. As for what I'm hiding, have any of you heard of the Hoods? The children nodded. To demonstrate their point, Scarlet, Robin and Oberon all drew up their Hoods. You are looking at three of the most important members of that gang. That is what we're hiding, Mr. Jack. Our business fronts and our activities therein. We are spread all throughout the city. Some of you may even get to be Mars and ears on the street. This is all done in aid of slowly unclenching the grip of the Duarte and freeing London from the imprisonment and degradation of the soul that poverty entails. Aren't you afraid someone's going to betray you to the Watchmen? Tell them where this place is? You know, Jack, I'm not afraid. Because we've been operating like this for three years now and it hasn't happened once. I have given no worker and no associate of mine cause to want to betray me. Would you have that cause? Uh, no. Then we have an agreement. Alright, we'll take a look. And the rest of you? The children nodded vigorously. None dared approach this immense, fearsome-looking Akka. But Lavinia's hand reached up to clutch at Oberon's finger. He glanced down in surprise. You have been listening to The Princess Thieves, written, edited, and produced by Alex Shaw, with a full cast. Narrator, performed by Spencer Lieb. Viola, performed by Loretta Saylor. Princess Gwendolyn, performed by Theo Lee. Archduke Coriolanus, Jack, and Robin, performed by Alex Shaw. Oberon, performed by Matt Wardle. Scarlet Wilhelmina, performed by Sharon Shaw. Lord Aaron, performed by James Batchelor. Simon, performed by Paul Davies. Tommy, performed by James Perkins. And Lavinia, performed by Willow Shaw. The Princess Thieves theme was Arrival by I. Sazanoff of Shockwave Sound. The Brandenburg Concerto by Johann Sebastian Bach and Egmont Overture by Ludwig van Beethoven, both arranged here by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com, who composed all other music including Mist on the Moor 
and volatile reaction. Many soundscapes provided by Tabletop Audio. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Datchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And the correct pronunciation of Putney is, of course, Putney. <laughs>